Well, some people had waited their whole life for it. It would be the first time in 99 years that it happened. And as the day drew near, anticipation was building. People booked trips. They planned to miss work. Some took their kids out of school. Some put up telescopes. Many bought special glasses. Maybe you were one of them. And on August 21st, 2017, tens of millions of people stopped whatever they were doing to stare heavenward and watch the daytime sky darken as the moon would pass between the sun and the earth and obscure its light. As the media covered the event, they featured people who were weeping, talking about how historic it was. Some even said it was life-changing. Now, as neat as it may have been, (laughs) I think those kind of descriptions are better saved for what we're going to be looking at today in Luke chapter 1, where I invite you to turn in your Bible. Because in Luke chapter 1, what we're going to see today is another eclipse of sorts. As we're going to see one sun, S-O-N, small s, is going to be eclipsed by another sun, capital S-O-N, who is also called, as we'll see in verse 78, the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness. These are prophetic references to the promised one who would truly change history and who would change our lives as he offers a gift of eternal life to all who will come to faith in Jesus Christ. So I invite you to look with me at Luke 1 as we begin reading in verses 57 through 58. It says, Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard the news that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. Now, as we read, Elizabeth gave birth to a son. It's kind of a, the old cop character, Joe Friday. Do you ever see his show? It's quick, it's clean, just the facts, right? Here's a baby that's been born. But I want you to remember that Luke has been giving us the backstory for more than 50 verses already. We've already seen all kinds of background to what is happening. You'll recall in the very first sermon in this series, we saw it started with the time of silence. There had been 400 years since the people of Israel had last heard from the Lord. He had spoken through the prophet Malachi, and then he fell silent for 400 years. And then we saw where Zacharias was serving in the temple. He was in there burning incense when suddenly the angel of the Lord appeared to him. This messenger angel called Gabriel said to him, there would be uh, a baby that would be born. And there was this time of waiting and anticipation. Not just the nine months as they waited for this baby that we're reading about right now to be born. Not just the decades that had come before that where Zacharias and Elizabeth, as we saw in verse 7, had been barren and were advanced in years. But this is a story that goes all the way back, even past the 400 years, all the way back to the very beginning. Because as we're going to see today, it goes back into the book of Genesis. This is a story that encompasses the totality of, of God's plans and promises. Now, right now, we're picking up the story that began in verse 13, where the angel Gabriel had said this son would be born. And when this son is born, John uh, would be his name. Zacharias had come home and scribbled that out on a, on a note to his wife. We're going to have a baby, and his name is to be John. Now, you'll remember when Zacharias first heard the news, he questioned the angel. He said to Gabriel, how can this be? Because I'm advanced in years and and so is my wife. And as a consequence of his disbelief, there was a time of discipline where he said, you will be silent 
until all these things are fulfilled. And so as we come to this story now, the baby has been born, but Zacharias is still silent because there's still one step left where the baby has to be named John. So look with me at verses 59 through 63. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There's no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet, and and he wrote as follows, His name is John. And they were all astonished. Now, back in the book of Genesis, in chapter 17, there was a sign given to Abraham, the sign of circumcision. And it was to be a sign that the, the, the Jews were God's chosen people, set apart as this covenant nation. And in Genesis 17, uh, 12, it says, And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generation. So what we're seeing here is Zacharias the priest is following what had been prescribed by the law. Thousands of years before, this circumcision was given and said, on the eighth day, you will uh, give this sign of the covenant. And so what's happening here is the fulfillment of that. In Luke one fifteen, we saw that he was also to fulfill the Nazarite vows, the special dietary restrictions. These were all things that were signaling to everybody, this child is being set apart. Set apart as a part of the covenant community. Set apart to a special calling uh, he, this, this little eight-day-year-old Johnny, had a special role to play. Even his name was special. Now, the name John was fairly common in that day, but there was nobody, as we just read, in his family. So this was special to say he's going to have this name. Tradition said you used a family name. Maybe the grandfather, maybe the dad. And as they had waited all these years, everybody just assumed, well, since it's a boy, it's going to be named after his dad. Junior is going to be walking the streets with with Zacharias. Everybody's going to say, there goes Zacharias the priest. Look at his pride and joy. Little, Little Zach is going to be following along, marrying his father. But his mom bursts her bubble and says, his name will be John. A name that you'll remember means Yahweh is gracious. When people looked at this little boy, they wouldn't think of his father, Zacharias. They would think of the heavenly father, Jehovah, Yahweh. And as this name was being given, the people tried to override Elizabeth. They say nobody in the family is named that. But Elizabeth holds her ground in verse 60. She says, no way. Absolutely not. His name is John. It's in the emphatic uh, structure in the Greek sentence. She is, she's put her foot down and said, it is John. Now they decide to go over her head. They say, well, let's see what, what the husband says about this. And you'll remember Zacharias can't speak, but it appears he can't hear as well. The, the word used is found throughout the scripture in places to speak of somebody who's not only dumb and unable to speak, but also deaf. And you, you see that it says they're making signs to him. So apparently he, he hasn't processed the whole uh, arguments that's going on all around him. And so finally they say, what's the name? And he says, give me a tablet. And he writes out, John is his name. His name is John. And, and as he's writing, you, you can picture the family kind of standing there smiling smugly. It's going to say little Zachary, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And when they look down, it says, John. 
says they're astonished. And they go, oh, no, 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 that must be a mistake. And he pounds the tablet. This is also in the emphatic position. Literally, it says, John is his name. And it says they're astonished. And it's about to be even more so because verse 64 says, And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. As as Zacharias first heard the promise, he doubted. So Zacharias was silent, a consequence, a discipline. But it was also a time to deepen his walk with God. A time to say you're going to have no distractions, you're going to be in silence, and you're going to get to contemplate and prepare. Has God ever done something like that with you? Has there ever been a time where God has put you in a waiting room, out in a wilderness experience? Have you ever gone through a time where you've turned your back on God and as a consequence there's been discipline? The world likes to tell us in those moments that God's done with us, that he's pushing us away, and he says, "Uh, I can't ever use you again. But that's not the case. In fact, the Bible says the opposite. In those times where God disciplines us, it's not because he doesn't like us or he's done with us. It's as Hebrews 12, 6 tells us, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Those times of discipline are a refining fire. It's a time where God sometimes puts us into a process to burn away the junk, the dross, to to get rid of the, the shackles that are holding us to something, to burn those things away. Just as metal goes into a, a furnace to be refined and become more precious as the junk is burned away or or metal is tempered and hardened and made more useful. God does that sometimes. We saw in verses 5 through 6 that Zacharias and his wife were righteous. They were serving the Lord. They were already good and godly people. But God said, I need to raise the temperature of the fire in your lives. You're going to wander in the wilderness and be barren for decades and struggle with that to grow and develop you. And then as Zacharias was told, the, the, the gift is coming of the son you have prayed for. And his disbelief led to this time of discipline and deepening his walk. God was not only preparing them as a couple, but they, he, he would be using this son in great ways. And, and, and God may be doing something like that in your life right now. Think of the story of a, a Christian blacksmith from the 1800s. He was in one of these frontier towns, and he was a godly man. Everybody in the community knew he loved the Lord. And, and because of it, they were surprised that this guy had gone through so much struggle in his life. He he was a a man who had a lot of tribulation in his life. And one day a non-believer came to him and said, if God is real and loves you like you say, then why is your life so hard? And the blacksmith replied, well, I don't know that I can account for things to your satisfaction, but I think I can to my own. He said, as a blacksmith, I often take a piece of iron and I, I put it into the fire until it's white hot. And then I put it on the anvil, and, and I hammer it, and, 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 and I see you know, how the metal's going to respond. And then I plunge it into the fire, uh, into the water, and I repeat this process in the fire and the water several times. And he, he says, if, if it looks like it'll take a temper, I, I hammer it, and I bend it, and I rasp and file it, and I make some useful article that can go in like a carriage and, and have useful service for 25 years or more. He says, if, however, when I first strike it on the anvil and I don't think it'll take a temper, then I throw it into the scrap heap and I sell it for half penny a pound. 
And he said, I believe my heavenly father has been testing me to see if I'll take a temper. He's put me in the fire and into the water. He's, he's worked on me and, and rubbed off rough edges. And I've tried to bear it as patiently as I could. My daily prayer has been, Lord, put me into the fire if you will. Put me into the water if you think I need it. Do anything you desire, Lord. Only for Christ's sake, please don't throw me in the scrap heap. Sometimes God takes us through deep waters, hot fires, times of testing and refining to prepare us. And that's what's happening with Zacharias. And so Zacharias, this good and godly man who already followed the Lord, has his faith deepened. At the moment of, t- of, of truth, what will his name be? Will you name him after yourself or will you name him what I've prescribed? He writes John. John is his name. And his tongue is loosed and he begins to speak words of praise and prophecy. And as the people see this happening, verses 65 and 66 tell us, fear came on all those living around them. And on, as all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them kept them in mind saying, what then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. Luke says the people are amazed. I mean, remember what's happened. There's been 400 years of silence. Nobody's heard a word from the Lord for, for centuries. And then this guy you know, Zacharias, uh, he's the family member of some who are there. He's, he's the neighbor. He's a friend. This is a priestly city. Remember we saw that the priests went in divisions to serve in the temple on a rotational basis. So the time comes for Zacharias and everybody says, well, he's just packing for a routine business trip. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's going to serve. And he'll come back and life will just continue. But when Zacharias comes back, he can't speak. He's mute. He's, he's scribbled out uh, uh, things about an angel and the promise of a son. And, and people are going, oh, well, it's, time's come. Zacharias is old. He's advanced in years. Maybe, maybe he's starting to, to lose a step or two. But then his old barren wife turns up pregnant. Everybody goes, whoa, maybe maybe there's something to this. So the antenna go up. Now, she's not the only pregnant woman. Remember, we saw that Elizabeth was pregnant and she hid herself away in her home for, for five months. But last week we saw that another pregnant girl shows up in town. I call her a girl because she was barely a teenager. And this is Cousin Mary. So all the family know Cousin Mary. And she walks into the home where Zacharias has been silent, Elizabeth is in seclusion. There hasn't been a sound coming from this house for months. And it's a little town, there are no windows, the walls are thin. So when Mary walks in and Elizabeth starts shouting the praises we saw, Blessed are you, Mary. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. John, my baby's leaping within. The mother of my Lord has come to visit. Everybody's standing outside going, What in the world is going on in there? People are seeing, they're hearing these things. Now remember, three months pass and Mary leaves and then boom, the baby's born that's in our story. Circumcision's about to happen, a routine ceremony. Everybody thinks the name's going to be Zacharias. There's this tussle and throwdown. John. John's his name. Let's see what Zacharias has to say about that. John. 
And then suddenly he starts speaking. I mean, if you were there, you would have started tiptoeing backwards going, am I Jerry Springer? I mean, what's going on? This is, this is a little bit unique, right? Everybody's going, this is not normal stuff. And, and, and that means this baby isn't normal. Something is special about this kid. If you want to see how special they thought he was, turn over to Luke chapter 3 for a moment. Because when we get to Luke chapter 3, in verses 15 and 16, we see what people were saying about John. It says in Luke three fifteen. Now while the people were in a state of expectation, and they were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. Messiah is what the word is. John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John isn't the Messiah, but he is the one to point to the Messiah. John was the messenger who would say, This one is the Messiah. We already saw that in Luke one seventeen. There the angel Gabriel said, He will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make a people prepared for the Lord. 400 years before that, Malachi, the last word they had heard, Malachi 3.1 said, God was sending a messenger to point to the promised one who was coming. And to make sure that the people knew John was that messenger, God has Zacharias speak these words of prophecy that we see in Luke 1, and 68. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and accomplished redemption for his people. Now, last week we saw in verses 46 through 56 something called the Magnificat. And the Magnificat is the Latin word for magnify. A lot of the titles you hear attached in theology come from the Latin. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. We saw this prophetic song of Mary where there were 15 Old Testament references pointing back to the fulfillment of prophecies. And now as we come into the passage we're looking at today, this is called the Benedictus. The Benedictus is the Latin word for the Greek word blessed. And what John What Zechariah says of John is not, let me start talking about my son. He starts by saying, let me talk about the Lord. Blessed be God. And we will find 16 Old Testament references in the few verses we're looking at today. What he's doing is he's bringing the totality of all of the Old Testament, all of the promises, all of the fulfillment together. And because of that, if you look at this text in the original language, it's, it, the structure is called a chiasm. Uh, the Greek letter chi looks like our English letter X. So a chiasm is where the lines come together and they funnel to the center of whatever it is you're looking at to say this is what we don't want you to miss. And if you look at the center of this prophetic psalm, uh, verses 72 through 73 tell us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. So what he's saying is God doesn't want us to miss the ultimate fulfillment of all of the covenants, all of the prophecies, things that have been said for thousands of years through multiple messengers is this. The time of fulfillment has come. 
the covenant that was made all the way back with Abraham is finding its fulfillment right here, just as he promised. It's why verse 70 says that as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. Do you remember what the the covenant with Abraham was about? If you go to Genesis 12, when he was still called Abram, before he even had a kid of his own, God said, I will make you the father of nations. You will be my chosen nation. The Jewish people will be raised up. And, And the purpose of raising up Israel was to draw all the nations to God. And so he says, the the nations will be blessed through you. I will make you a great nation. And as you keep reading through Genesis, chapter 15 says, God told Abraham to look to the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said, so shall your descendants be. And then he goes through and he gives some of the history Israel would face, the captivity in Egypt and how God would set them free. And as this is going on, we find the covenant made. And the way this covenant was made, it was a legal contract in that day. Uh, He tells Abraham, I want you to go and take some animals and I want you to sacrifice them and cut them in two. And so he made an aisle like you see here in the center of our church. He said, put one half of the animal over here and put the other half of the animal over here. And then normally the person making this covenant would walk through the center of the animals But instead of Abraham being the one who moved down the center to show he was binding himself to God, that he was signing the covenant and obligating himself, God is the one who went through the center in the form of a flaming torch in a smoking oven. Which is amazing because these type of covenants were made where the lesser king obligated himself to the greater king. And it was God Almighty, the sovereign of the universe, who bound himself to Abraham and said, I am the one who will fulfill this covenant. And so this sign was given. And then just a a few verses later, I mean a little bit later in chapter 17, God renews his promise to Abraham. And he does that by saying, I'm going to give you another sign of a covenant called circumcision. Do you remember the context of what's happening? Zacharias and Elizabeth are bringing John to be circumcised fulfilling this other sign of the covenant. The promises are being brought out. The people's uh, you know, antenna are up. They're, they're, they're looking at all that's happening. And, and Zacharias praises God, and he says in verses 68 through 69, he has visited and accomplished redemption for his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. This Greek word for redemption is lutrosin. It's, it's a special word that was used to mean the setting free of, of a person by the pain of a ransom. It was used to set captivities and war free. It was used to buy a slave off the, the auction block. And they would pay the price and they would set him or her free and say, you are no longer under bondage. You've been released. In Luke 4.18, we're going to see how Jesus Christ will walk into a synagogue on the day of worship, and as he unrolls the scroll, the Torah scroll, uh, and the Tanakh that's connected, he comes to Isaiah chapter 61. And he reads from Isaiah 61 uh, th- these words. He says there in Luke 4.18 that he came to bring deliverance to the captives, setting us free from the bondage of sin and death. And Jesus rolls up the scroll and he says, this day it is fulfilled. And do you remember how the people responded? It wasn't rejoicing. 
They said, how dare you claim to be the Messiah? How dare you claim to be God? The people knew who it was who would do that. And here in verse 77, we're told that Jesus Christ is the one coming. And it was John who was pointing to him, and he says in verse 77, God would give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Now, this word for forgiveness is a different Greek word. It's aphesis, and it means to release from captivity, to dismiss a debt. And the way that God dismisses our debt is not to forget it, just say, oh, forget it, never mind. God is holy. He's just. The law has to be fulfilled. He says, when we sin, Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. When we sin, a debt is owed. It has to be paid. And so God said, you can't pay it because you owe it. Only I can pay it. And he sent his son Jesus to die to pay that penalty of death. He forgave the debt by fulfilling the debt. When we get to Luke chapter 7 and verse 48, the same Greek word is going to show up where Jesus is going to turn to a woman and he's going to say to her, woman, your sins are forgiven because of your faith. And when we get there, we're going to see it's in the context of of Jesus being brought into the house of the Pharisees. And you'll remember these guys were self-righteous. They were always trying to catch Jesus. And and they bring him in and they're, they're trying to catch him in a trap. And in comes this woman who had been a prostitute. And she's, she's grateful to what Jesus has done for her, and she's showing her, her, her gratitude and, and love. And the Pharisees are all standing back going, if this guy only knew, he claims to be a prophet, says he's God, well, he, he doesn't even know what this woman is. Everybody in town knows her. And Jesus turns to them, and I love the way he always does it. He doesn't just hammer them. He says, let me tell you a story. Oh, yes, teacher, we love stories. He says there were two debtors. One owed a lot of money. Another one also owed a debt, but it was a little bit of money. And the master forgives both. Who do you think loves or is the most grateful? They said, hmm, that's, that's a tough one. Well, I guess the one who, who was forgiven much. And he says, yeah, see this prostitute? This woman that you guys all say everybody knows how wretched she is, all her sins, how much she owed. Uh, she's been forgiven. That's why she's so grateful. And then he says, you self-righteous hypocrites, you owe a debt too. You haven't sinned as much, but you're spiritually bankrupt and you owe a penalty as well. And this is the word that Jesus is using when he says we have been released from the, the penalty. He's dismissed the debt. All of us here owe that penalty, friends. We may not be as bad as that prostitute on the street in our mind or anything else, but Romans 3.10 tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. It says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Whether it's me as the pastor in this pulpit or you as a person in the pew, we are all sinners. We are all under the penalty of death. We are all spiritually bankrupt. We owe a debt we could not pay. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's why the Messiah came, so he could go to the cross, so he could pay the penalty of death, so he could fulfill the law as a holy and just God and still be the tender God of mercies, as this prophecy says as well. It's where the two areas of attributes, his love and mercy, come together with his holiness and justice. It is met at the cross, and it only comes through the promised Messiah 
which is what is happening. This is what we're reading about here. In the scripture, a a horn is a symbol of power and victory, not like the horn we blow, but it's speaking of the horns an animal would have. And, and he gives us this image here. If you read 1 Kings twenty two eleven, there it says, And Zedekiah, the king of Chinnah, made a horns of iron for himself. And he says, Thus says the Lord, with these you will gore the Armenians and, and until they are consumed. So another prophet is, is giving a visual picture, and he makes these literal horns, and he says, These are the things that are going to take out the enemy. And here we're told uh, in verse 71 that salvation is from our enemies and from the hand of all <coughs> excuse me all who hate us and he uses this picture of a horn a horn is not only the sign of glory of a trophy buck but it's also the weapons that it uses to defend itself and here we have this picture of an army that is about to be taken captive, but it says then help arrives and the enemy is defeated. And as, as the army is defeated, the enemy army, notice that they can no longer take any additional captives. What it's telling us is what Jesus accomplished is not just a temporary setting us free, but it is a permanent and total salvation. Now, I know as I'm bringing all this together, right about now some of you are going, this is too much. There's, there's 16 different Old Testament allusions that I'm bringing together for you. This is the totality of all of God's revelation. So what I want you to see is if you're feeling overwhelmed at the moment, that's good. Because we should be blown away. We should be like the people in that day that are saying, we're afraid. Something is big here and we can't understand it. But what we see here is something we can understand. Because God tells us what it's all about. He tells us in in verses 76 through 79, he says John's role was to come and prepare people to tell us what is happening. He says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his way, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. As these wonderful truths are being revealed, he uses the Greek word anatole here. And it's a word that literally describes the, the sunrise as the sun begins to come up over the horizon. And it, it says, we have this beautiful picture here, don't we? He says, we were in the shadow of death. We were in darkness in this sin-bound world. We were lost and hopeless. And suddenly the light breaks into the darkness and it dispels and removes it with the coming of the Messiah. It's not only a beautiful picture, but it's prophetic. Because in Numbers 24, 17, it it speaks of the star rising out of Jacob, the Messiah coming out of the line of David, as as Zacharias pointed to. Malachi 4, 2 said there will be the coming of the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N. And he says, Jesus, this Messiah is the one who fulfilled these things. The people in that day, the priests who were gathered, the friends, the family that were in this circumcision, as they hear the prophecy, they would have immediately thought of Isaiah chapter 9. Another prophetic psalm, Isaiah 9-2 tells us, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. These next verses out of Isaiah chapter 9, you'll recognize. You drop down a few verses, you see that it points to the promised Messiah because Isaiah 9-6 says, For a child will be born to us. 
A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. You see, the Jews in that day were under Roman oppression. They wanted, they wanted to throw off the yoke of this foreign government. They, they hoped for a Messiah that would be a military redeemer. And what Zacharias is saying is the Messiah is coming, but he's going to be so much more than what you think. He's not going to set you free uh, simply in an earthly oppression, but he's setting you free for all eternity. He preaches this, this message that's even greater. It's why verses 77 through 79 tell us, John was to be the forerunner to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. John was being set apart to be this messenger. He had a special role to go out with the good news of the gospel and share it with others. And friends, as we're talking about this fulfillment of all of the Jewish prophecies, what a, what a special time we're in this very week. Some of you know that right now, uh, if you have any friends who are Jewish or if you've been watching the news or, or seeing any internet feeds, we're in what's called the 10 days of awe or repentance right now. In the Jewish calendar, this begins with something called Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah means literally the head of the year. It's the Jewish New Year. And the Jewish New Year was celebrated on September 20th. And after Rosh Hashanah, there is a 10-day period where Jews are preparing themselves for what is called Yom Kippur, which literally means the Day of Atonement. And that will begin at sunset on September 29th, just in a few days. And what's happening right now for the Jewish community is they, they are in a, a period of the 10 days of awe or repentance. They say that right now the books are open in heaven. And this is, this is kind of like tax season for accountants, right? This is the big day. This is the time where you go in and you get the books and the ledgers right. And what they're saying is you should be doing deeds of righteousness. You should be doing special works, all kinds of things to kind of help tilt the scales in your favor because at Yom Kippur, when the 10 days are up, boom, the books are closed. And they don't open again until Rosh Hashanah of the following year. So this is your window to, to, to make things right and work your way into God's graces. That's not what the scriptures say. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. Whether you're Jewish or Gentile, you cannot work your way to God. The wages of sin, what you earn by how you live your life, is death. And so this is a time where you can go to your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers who are Jewish. And in a very loving way, point them to the Messiah. Point them to the fulfillment of the scriptures. What we're reading about today, you, you don't have to take them through the New Testament. We've just walked through the totality of the Old Testament and God's covenants and promises and that the Messiah would come. This is the good news of the gospel, both for Jew and Gentile. This is what God has done for us. Remember, God is a holy and just God. And because of that, the penalty has to be paid. He's also a God of tender mercies, as Zacharias said. And the two truths come together in the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
as God showed his forgiveness and love for us. Romans 5 eight, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The mercy of God with the justice of God is met at the cross and it is through the coming of the promised Messiah that we've been saved. This is why we're, we're looking at this today. 1 John 4.10 tells us, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is the word halismas. It described the mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. It's where the blood was applied to, to uh, bring forgiveness for the sins the high priest would go once a year behind the veil and he would apply the blood as an offering. And you'll remember that in the New Testament, that veil was split in two, ripped from top to bottom, from heaven to earth, when Jesus died on the cross and he said in John 19.30, it is finished. The word halismos, propitiation, literally means to satisfy the requirements of the law and to remove the wrath. And that's what Jesus did for us. He paid that penalty of death if you're here this morning and you've never come to faith in Christ, if you've been trying to earn your way to God by being good enough, by going to church, by doing enough stuff, you can't make it that way, friends. But Jesus made the way home. He said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He paid that penalty in full. The promised Messiah has come. And if you would like to receive God's great gift to you of new life, his eternal gift to be set free from the penalty of sin and death. I invite you now to pray a prayer with me. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. It's just your way of saying to God, I recognize you're who you said you were. Jesus, you were the Messiah. You came and took on physical form so that you could go to the cross and take my place and shed your blood to pay that penalty of death that I owed. Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God offers us that gift of new life today. And if you're ready to receive his great gift to you, I invite you just to bow your heads and to pray this prayer with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes in my life, and because of that, I, I owe a penalty. A penalty that has to be paid, that penalty of death. I thank you, Jesus, that you came and you took my place. You willingly went to the cross to die for me, to pay that penalty of death that I owed. And today, Lord Jesus, I'm turning from my sins into you and accepting your gift. I thank you that you died for me. And I thank you, Lord, that you showed that you were who you said you were the Son of God, by rising from the grave after three days. Lord God, I thank you that you've set me free from the shadow of death, that you brought me into light and into your family. Thank you for the gift of eternal life that I have through you, Jesus, my precious Savior. It's in your name that I pray and thank you. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I'm going to be at the front afterwards. There will be prayer leaders. We would love to talk to you to make sure you understand that step of faith you just took. And for the rest of us who have done that in the past, we're called to be like John, messengers of the good news, those who have been set apart to leave and go out into the world and share the good news that the promised one has come, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
Will you stand and sing this closing song of worship, please?